So welcome everybody. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, the title for this particular live morning show, whatever, is, uh, gonna be called, uh, Disembodied Religion. <laughs> it's kind of a unique title. It sounds maybe a little negative. Maybe it sounds positive to some. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm gonna give you a little bit, bit of a backstory. Most of you know, uh, I've mentioned on here that I've been having a lot of, uh, Issues with my spine, my neck, my back. Um, my I turned 50 in August, and 50 welcomed me with uh, chronic constant pain. Isn't that wonderful? And I didn't realize how much I took <clears throat> my health and my body for granted. Um, so I've been trying everything to get this worked out. I had really hoped to start uh, doing some live meetings uh, locally this fall, but... Uh, I just, by the time I work all week, because I think part of my issue is like repetitive motion and stuff at work and sitting all day. Um, so I've been taking the weekends to try to, um, uh, catch up. So it's put off my plans, but that's okay. Uh, still get to do this. I'm doing some other things as well. And, um, <clears throat> for some groups, um, that I'm doing teachings and studies and stuff for through Zoom. So thank God for that, right? <laughs> And it's great to be able to, to come to you guys. But it's got me thinking more and learning and become becoming more aware of uh, my relationship with my body. And just the fact that I have to say it like that is uh, interesting, isn't it? Um, we've got this Western dualism, this Western dichotomy between consciousness and mind and body. It kind of goes way back. And I want to talk about that a little bit. But I want to give you a backstory on this. So for those of you that didn't know me in my past life, <laughs> and I mean when I was a pastor before, one of the things we got into for a season was uh, what I would call hyper-deliverance. Now, for those of you that may not be familiar with the term, hyper-deliverance is this idea that demons are everywhere and that there are certain things that we do that makes that establishes agreements with demons, opens the door to demons, and that is what causes most of the affliction that we have in our life. And so we had this whole program that we would take people through. In fact, we even did what we called Freedom Weekends. <laughs> oh, it's embarrassing now. But we did these Freedom Weekends. We had a good time with it. We had some good, you know, people gave us really positive feedback about it. But basically, we would take six hours on a weekend or seven even on a Friday night and a Saturday. And we would teach people how they picked up demons <clears throat> and then how they could get rid of them by repenting and renouncing and all this stuff. And so being someone who's always been really meticulous in our ministry, I read <clears throat> books from every angle on this that I could possibly get from a Christian perspective. So what I mean by that was I read like the more conservative evangelical guys like Neil Anderson, his book, The Bondage Breaker. I read, uh, some Catholic, but he was the chief exorcist out of, uh, <clears throat> the Vatican. Uh, read things certainly from a Pentecostal level. And there were people that were even more hyper deliverance than we were. They were having to get rid of demons, almost like germs. <laughs> they would have to do their daily confessing, repenting, and some of them even, uh, coughing into bags because that's how you knew you were getting deliverance. If you coughed, if you had some physical manifestation, then you knew you were getting rid of uh, whatever 
infestation of the demonic that you had. So <clears throat> I know it, it can seem like maybe I kind of go to extremes, but I really do approach things a bit more methodically than that. I'm a bit more aware than that, although I realize <clears throat> that a lot of people would have that criticism. And I certainly understand that because it would seem now I'm clear over on the other side. And so what what kind of took me on this journey out of this was um, several things. Uh, Bible scholarship certainly had a part to play. Uh, my life experience certainly had uh, a part to play. And there was also what I would consider supernatural visitations. Um, if you don't believe in that kind of thing, then, uh, you know, my subconscious mind or the unconscious mind communicating with the conscious mind and giving me experiences like trances and out-of-body experiences and stuff like that. So I kind of am starting on this journey, and then there were synchronizations and all kinds of crazy things that broke my broke me out of that mold. I was talking to Derek Day Friday, and one of the things Derek said was you have to shake up, you have to shake up to wake up, that most of the time we don't just come around to things because of reason and logic, we come around because something really shakes us. So I went through a really, really, really intense shaking that began for me really hardcore in 2016, right? So I'm saying all that to say, when I I went to a metaphysical fair for the first time, I really went with fear and trembling. Because at the metaphysical fair, they had all this stuff that, we taught people to be afraid of and we taught was evil and wrong and demonic. Uh, so I'm walking around <laughs> this metaphysical fair thinking, my gosh, am I going to pick up a demon? <laughs> That's where my mindset was. But we were willing to try this. And so one of the things I realized later was that I investigated all these other things from only a Christian viewpoint and Christian perspective. And <clears throat> that's like, uh, you know, talking to somebody that's never done it, <laughs> talking to somebody that's never been a part of it, someone whose mission is to criticize it, to maintain their own superiority over other belief systems and practices and things of this nature. But anyway, we end up getting this card reading. I end up sitting down and getting a card reading for the first time. And I remember just being scared. And I know that, that sounds kind of crazy, but I remember this was the logic I was saying in my mind. If I pick up a demon from this card reading, then I know enough people that know enough about deliverance, they can get it out of me. <laughs> so that was my approach. And the reading was nothing like what I had thought it would be like. It was very edifying. The lady that did it for us was very compassionate. But she said something with me that's stayed with me to this day. And she was talking about, she knew, you know, that we were coming out of Christianity. And she said, uh, the issue with, one of the issues with Christianity is that it only deals with the upper chakras. Now, <clears throat> I didn't necessarily believe in chakras at that time. And I'm still not sure where I'm at with that. Um, I think it's a good map for consciousness. Uh, I think it's a great map for consciousness. 
But I don't know if there's really swirling energy centers in the places we say or not. That's just me. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I do have a healthy amount of skepticism when it comes to things. Not against it. Um, use it, work with it, and find it very, very helpful. But I'm just not sure that the map is the territory on this one. Uh, that's just me. But definitely back then I didn't believe in chakras. But what she was saying was <clears throat> that everything about Christianity, everything that we do is from the neck up. And I got to thinking about that. So let's just take the, for those of you who don't know the chakras from the neck up, you have one in your throat that represents your voice. One right here that some people call the third eye represents intuition. And then your crown chakra, which opens up to universal consciousness or the mind of God, has to do with your relationship with spirit. At least that's how I understand them. <clears throat> so regardless, if you think about Christianity as it's practiced today, for the most part, it's 90% at least, I would say, from the neck up. So we go to church and we sing, right? We sing songs. We have a worship team that leads us into singing. Uh, and then we pray. And then we listen to a sermon, or in my case, we preach the sermon. And so you're being fed intellectually. You're using your voice. We're being taught, you know, that prayer, which is also vocal. These are the things you need to do. Pray, vocal, read your Bible, intellectual, right? And, uh, you know, listen for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What bears witness with your spirit? Revelation from God, right? That came through the Bible. And then testify, share your faith. What I miss. And then midweek, we might go to uh, a Bible study. Let's say. What's a Bible study? We sit around, have coffee or whatever. We open up the word of God. We open up the word of God and we share information <clears throat> and then we try to receive that information. And then the only place the rest of us comes into play is to try to apply that information. So Christianity is a religion from the neck up at the end of the day, it tries to govern from the neck down, but really it's, Neck up. Does that make sense? <laughs> see if I'm getting I got this open. Let me see if I'm getting any comments here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, a few of you. Yeah, we're part of that. Yep. <laughs> Christy says, I'm dying laughing because I felt the same way. Uh, so you, you get it, right? And that really stayed with me because I thought, man. So much truth to that. And it's, it was frustrating. Even I was still pastoring then and it was so frustrating because how do we change that? You know, I mean, what is this? And so then we think about the faith, right? The faith primarily has to do with things that are disembodied. So in other words, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, you know, yeah, we talk about the omnipresence of God, but if you start talking about the omnipresence of God too much, 
Christians would call you a pantheist. Uh, so we, we believe that, you know, somehow the spirit exists in the air or something. And we pray to this God that we cannot really see, feel, no sensory input, right? Um, unless it comes inwardly, internally or whatever. But as general rule, we walk by faith and not by sight. If you got into the faith movement at all, which I also did, then, uh, you really are told to deny your senses. Smith Wigglesworth, uh, great, uh, early 20th century evangelist from England is famous in Pentecostal circles for saying, I'm not moved by what I see. I'm not moved by what I hear. I'm not moved by what I feel. I'm only moved by what I believe. <clears throat> so turn off your senses, walk by faith. So it, at any rate, I want to come back to this Father, Son, Spirit. They're disembodied, although we would argue that Jesus was incarnate, but that was just so that he could die for our sins, right? Then his body was taken up to heaven. We don't <clears throat> see his body today. If you're Catholic, maybe uh, you believe in transubstantiation, and so you have the body of Christ and blood of Christ and the, and the Eucharist and, and the cup. But for the rest of us, it's completely, there's nothing grounding about our relationship with what some of you call out there, Sky Daddy, right? So there's that. And then we have a soul, and we're supposed to be worried more about our soul uh, than this life or this body. Don't store up your treasure on earth where moth and rust can devour it, and thieves can break in and steal it, but store up your treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And just be faithful and pass the tests that we have down here. We have all kinds of tests, you know, that God, that, that's the whole purpose for life in a lot of Christianity is to pass the test. You have to pass the, the moral test. You have to pass the, uh, and in the moral test is all kinds of things, um, <clears throat> primarily sexuality. You got to pass the sexual test. Uh, you got to stay faithful, stay pure. Uh, before marriage, <clears throat> marry someone of the opposite sex, and then stay faithful to that person for the rest of your life. You do that, you pass that test, you can check that box. Um, <clears throat> there is, uh, I don't know, man, I look at the Christian church today, especially the evangelical charismatic church, where's, where's the rest of morality? I don't know, because we talk evil of people and gossip and <clears throat> all kinds of other stuff. But anyway, you get the point. There's the moral test that you have to pass. And then most importantly, you have to pass a history class or a history test, the history lesson that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for our sins. And then if we believe in him, we take care of our soul. We take care of our spirit for eternity, which means when we die, then if we pass all the tests, when we die, we'll stand before Jesus before the Father as uh, uh, for judgment, a review of our lives, basically, to see if we pass the tests. And if we pass the tests, then we can be granted access to eternity in heaven. It's like it's the ultimate fix. You know, whatever your problems are down here, uh, you can be a terrible person. But if you pass the history test and check a few other boxes, maybe. 
get baptized, go to church, give your tithe, uh, serve in the church, uh, pray, that kind of stuff, then you get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, joy of your Lord. So this is all very, very disembodied. Uh, I keep looking, you know, where's, where's the rest of the body in this? Oh yeah, that's right. So Paul talked about in the Greek sarks, which gets translated as flesh. So if you read the Pauline literature, you're supposed to walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. You're supposed to mortify or crucify the flesh. You're supposed to put to death the body of sin. And so all these mental frames that we get, right, about the body that cause us to live in a way where our faith is not very embodied and we don't have very good answers for a lot of real-life situations that people are going through. So we offer them a spiritual bypass. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Paul because if you look back at most ancient religions or religions and their origins, I mean, you got to realize, you know, life as a human being hasn't always been comfortable. Uh, The vast, vast majority of human experience for the vast majority of people has probably been one of oppression and one of trauma and some kind of suffering and loss, right? And certainly we have a reason to distrust the body just naturally, just innately, because it's the death of the body, the decaying of the body that takes our loved ones away from us. So we have to deal with this idea of death. You know, some people are so cynical. When you come out of the womb, you begin to die, right? Your body begins to this this process. We have disease processes where we can feel like our body betrayed us. Um, maybe we get into situations with people or we're in situations with people that we were sexually attracted to and we did something considered immoral. And so we felt like afterwards, I didn't want to do that. My body betrayed me. So if you have a really super high sexual morality, sexual ethic, then if you're wired to want more sex or enjoy it, then you give in to those impulses, whether it's with another person or by yourself, uh, you can feel like your body betrayed you. That's that part. But back to ancient people, um, the, the body also betrays us when we have disease, right? So if you have any kind of disease, uh, <clears throat> this, let's just say that even it's not infectious, you have diabetes or you have um, a heart problem, high blood pressure or some other kind of heart issue, um, <clears throat> whatever, any kind of disease anywhere in your body, um, that part is not working like it should or working for your benefit seems to be working against you. It's like the body betrayed us. Pain is felt in the body. So all the suffering that we experience really exists in the body. Now, someone say, what about emotional suffering? I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the reality is all suffering that we experience, and I'll show this with emotions in a minute, is experienced in the body. So even reincarnation, the idea of reincarnation, and, and understand that Eastern practices 
the philosophical underpinning of Eastern practices, things like meditation and going off, you know, in, in people that are really devoted in a monastery or whatever. The philosophical underpinning of this was that life was full of suffering. And how do we escape suffering? Particularly, how do we get off the wheel of death and rebirth or reincarnation? Reincarnation was not seen as some kind of romantic thing. You know, what, what will I get to experience in my next life? And am I building good karma for the next life? As much as it was seen as a, a prison where you were being recycled in this realm of suffering. Really, in, in the philosophies of those things, earth was hell. And we're trying to get out of hell, but we keep getting recycled into hell. And so the way to do that is to lose all attachment to the physical world. So all of that, these aesthetics, right, of uh, stuff that yogis would do. Yogis would do extreme aesthetic things, uh, even to the point of sleeping on a board rather than a comfortable bed. All kinds of things to sort of torture the body, fasting, um, all this stuff. Meditating, getting to a place of no thought, you know, letting go of attachments. All that stuff wasn't to make your life, the quality of your life better here. It was so that when you died, you wouldn't be attached to anything that could pull you back into the cycle of death and rebirth. And so that's why I, I think it's interesting the way Eastern practices have migrated to the West, because in the West, we tend to be more materialistic as a rule. Uh and so it's just interesting how it gets, how it's morphed and romanticized and divorced from its sort of philosophical underpinnings, which is okay because any kind of a living faith, anything that's alive should develop and mature, right? But it's just interesting that we'll get into these practices and don't take the time to really explore where they came from, what they're about. So in the East, you kind of have that sort of religious war, discontentment, or being at odds with the body. In Gnosticism, the body was seen as a tomb, and the earth was seen as a prison. And so, again, the idea was to be able to uh, escape from the body. We could talk about the rapture. So I, I think you're getting it. Now, at least in the East, though, with yoga, it, it involves the body. So they, they're one up, they one up us there uh, versus Christian stuff here, right? And so I'm, I'm rethinking some of this stuff and I'm having to make peace with my body. I'm having to really, 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 really more than at any other time in my life, think about my body and my relationship to my body. Now I can honestly tell you, I know very, very few women that I've talked to about this on a personal level that have a good relationship with their body that have a good relationship with food. All kinds of reasons we can have a negative relationship with our body. It can be the source of our pain, the source of our suffering, the source of our loss. Um, but also, uh, we don't like the way we look. Uh, one of the hardest things to get someone to do in that comes for therapy is to get them to look themselves in the mirror and look themselves in the eye and give really a heartfelt, I love you to themselves. So uncomfortable looking in the mirror. And like I said, so many women uncomfortable with how their bodies look because I guess they're comparing themselves to these 
polished, sort of digitized used to call them pinup girls, but now it's, it's not even that. Now, even on social media, you have filters, all kinds of things that can make you look better. Pictures that can be, uh, touched up to make you look better than you are. And so there's all this sort of weird stuff that we have with our bodies, right? If you're trying to lose weight, then your hunger is betraying your goals of losing weight. So I feel like I'm belaboring the point, but I want you to really be able to see this. And so from a religious standpoint, we we really don't have any way to deal with the body in Christianity because, really, again, it's a religion. I'm going to keep saying this. It's a religion from the neck up, right? Now, here's the thing about emotions and emotional suffering. Say emotional suffering exists because of the ego, uh, because of the story that we create in our head as though our emotions were somehow connected with the stories that we tell ourselves. Cognitive behavioral therapy in counseling is somewhat the same way that we, if we change the way we think, we can change the way we feel. Now, there is a feedback loop between the stories that we tell ourselves, the movies that we play in our mind, the chatter that goes on with our internal dialogue, and the way we feel. But at the end of the day, we we um, think in our what we call our minds, but we feel in our bodies. We feel in our bodies. You've never had an emotion that did not register in your body. Because that's the only way you can feel it. Feeling, just talk about that for a minute. Feeling is an embodied experience entirely. So your emotional suffering is pain that you're feeling somewhere in your body. I have a heavy heart. I feel like I got kicked in the stomach. I feel like I got stabbed in the back. We use these metaphors, but they're literal in some sense. So let's just take fear, for example, fear or stress or anxiety that people experience. A lot of people today struggle with anxiety, and we can all relate to fear on some level. So fear is the result of uh, chemicals that our brain releases into our nervous system. It's the activation of what's called the sympathetic nervous system. So you have emotions strictly because of your nervous system. So literally a chemical cocktail, Joe Dispenza does a great job of explaining this in his books, but you literally get like a chemical cocktail that gets sent to your body that causes changes in the body. And when those changes in the body happen, you experience that as an emotion. That's true of every single emotion that we have. Um, our pleasant emotions are the result oftentimes of uh, dopamine or oxytocin or, you know, not an expert on this stuff, but I know, I know enough to get around the block, right? Uh, so we get surges of that, and that creates this sort of happy feeling that we have. So our feelings, our emotions are all the byproduct of some biological factor that's going on in our bodies, the activation of the nervous system. What's, what's going on in your nervous system? That has nothing to do with the stories, they're, they're not even connected. It's even different centers in the brain that don't even have good communication with each other that are responsible for these things. 
So the amygdala, which is a tiny part of the brain, is responsible for anxiety. And the stories that you're telling yourself is in your frontal, your frontal lobe, and there's not good neural circuitry for communication between the frontal lobe and the uh, amygdala part of the brain. So <laughs> that's why sometimes you can't talk yourself out of anxiety or stress, or you can't talk yourself sometimes out of a panic attack. So... And then you've got, uh, oh, what's the, Bessel van der Kirk, who's considered one of the foremost experts in the world on trauma and trauma-related therapy. And he has a book that he's written called The Body Keeps Score. And so what they're learning more and more and more about emotions and about mental and emotional health is that it's tied deeply with the body that we can store, not only do we feel emotions in our body, but we can store uh, sort of deposits of those things in our body. And certainly with trauma, the body remembers. That's what it, what it means, like the body keeps score. So in my mind, I can know I'm out of that traumatic situation, and I can get triggered and not even know what triggered it. Something out here can trigger it. All of a sudden, I'm dealing with some form, if I have post-traumatic stress disorder, I'm dealing with some kind of post-traumatic stress in my body. It's one of the reasons I had to get away from church, because church was a complex traumatic event for me. And what I mean by complex trauma is not that it's shock trauma. There's there's two different types. There's complex trauma, which is a repeated trauma over and over and over and over and over that we exist within. So this could be someone who's in a relationship that they don't want to be in. Or as a child, if you're getting bullied at school, maybe the bullying isn't intensely physical. Maybe it's just uh, being made fun of. Maybe it's just being shunned in some respect. So you're experiencing feelings of shame, but you have to keep getting up as a child and going to that school. And then there are people that come home and they experience some kind of demeaning or unaffirming abuse from their parents and then even from their siblings, Nobody talks about sibling abuse, but sibling abuse is a very real thing. And so that's a complex trauma. Shock trauma would be like a a rape or would be like a car accident or you watch someone die. Something like that that just shocks your system. And what makes war, what makes PTSD for veterans so bad is they have both. They have consistent doses of the shock trauma from the shock of war and the the ugliness of war. And they have the complex trauma because they can't go AWOL. They can't leave and get out. They have to get up every day and do what their superiors tell them to do. So it's a perfect recipe for the combination, for the perfect storm of trauma to happen in their lives. And that's why their PTSD is, is so bad. And so what more and more research is finding out is that things like, uh, putting yourself in a state of heart coherence where you're breathing and your heart rate are aligning in coherence. Heart math can be a great treatment for some of that stuff. Acupuncture can treat that stuff. Uh, tapping. Some of you have heard of the tapping solution because this stuff gets stored in our bodies. Things like breath work. They're even doing things now with sound and vibration and how that impacts the person at the emotional level. So here's the really interesting and fascinating thing, and I can, 
I mean, this is all anecdotal, but it's almost 100% accurate every time when I do this. One of the things that I, you know, started looking at was muscle testing, which is based on kinesiology. And so most muscle testing is you hold your arm out, somebody will apply pressure, and if there's resistance, um, they, they, they can judge whether there is resistance to that or whether they can push the arm down and not resistance to that. And so you can explore someone's beliefs with muscle testing and find out that oftentimes the body and the stories, what we call the ego of the mind, are in complete disharmony. There are some people who think they believe negative stuff about themselves, but when you muscle test them, they believe positively. When you muscle test that belief, the body's saying, no, we believe this. And you talk to that person more, you find out there is a huge portion of them that when they can get out of the story, they can get out of that loop that's playing in their head. There's a big part of them that actually does believe those positive things, and they act those things out. On the flip side of that, you can think that you have dealt with something. You can think that you're over something. You can play all kinds of games of denial, minimizing uh, all this stuff. In the story that you're playing in your head, your thoughts, you're thinking in your head, and your body can tell a totally different story. So much of the unconscious mind is carried in the nervous system. The nervous system is telling a different story. So I had to get away from church to give my nervous system the chance to recover. And it's been much harder for my nervous system to recover from the effects of religious trauma than it has been for my brain or for my story to change. My story will change. But again, because it's neck up, right? Religion from the neck up, uh, there wasn't a good mechanism for me to address what was going on in my nervous system, except to get away from it for a while so that I could heal from the emotional trauma, but heal in my body. <laughs> Focusing, uh, Carl Forehand, um, if you've read any of his work, his book Being and some of his other stuff, or listened to his podcasts on the Desert Sanctuary and stuff, he talks a lot about focusing. Focusing is having a person do a body scan, notice where they feel uptight, where they feel tense, where they believe different stories. So here's the thing that I'm finding out, guys. Um, it, let me give you one more. Let me give you one more example. How many of you have ever heard, like, can't remember what it is, like 83% or whatever of communication is nonverbal? That only like, I don't know, really small percentage, really small slice of the pie of communication is verbal. And that's been circulated a lot in motivational conferences. It's just become something that people automatically believe. Like people automatically believe somewhere in the Bible it says spare the rod, spoil the child. But that in fact isn't a Bible verse found anywhere in the Bible. But people will say the Bible says spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, so this whole thing with communication being nonverbal, uh, such a small percentage, I want to just do an experiment. Turn down your volume while I'm talking and try to pick up 83% of what I'm saying. Or turn on a sitcom and hit the mute button and try to pick up 86 or 83% or whatever the, the numbers are, I forgot, 
try to get that much of the message. You can't because communication is really, I mean, the verbal piece is really big. The reason that got circulated was because they did a study with dogs and they found out that dogs responded to only, you know, the 12% or whatever verbal, their name, no, whatever. But they responded a lot to the nonverbal communications. But here's something that is a little bit more nuanced from more sophisticated type studies. And that is when someone is incongruent, you look for incongruence in a message. And what incongruence is, is when the nonverbals do not match with the verbals. So if I were to say, shake my head and say, yeah, I'm doing really good. That would be an example of uh, incongruence. Because I'm saying no, but saying yes at the same time. So what they found out is that the body tells the truth. (laughs) That when there is a discrepancy between verbal and nonverbal communication, that the nonverbals are telling the truth. This is the basis for lie detector tests, right? They're measuring what's going on in your body in answer to the questions. And they're going by what the body's saying not what the mouth is saying. Uh, there's been other experimentation because uh, you have a whole set of neurons, literally a brain in your gut, a consciousness there. And so they're experimenting with that. And they're, you know, I read one article where, or maybe it's in a book, I can't remember. I think it was in a book where they were talking about experimentation with the gut brain in lie detecting because it was even more accurate than other lie detector tests. So when there's discrepancy, it's the body that's telling the truth. So we got a real problem then if we're only addressing this or if our thoughts and stories or our brain, what we call our mind, our consciousness, is not aligned with our body. I'm spending way too much time on this because I wanted to get to something else. So... What I'm trying to learn to do right now is be embodied, not be so much in my head, be more grounded, more aware of what's in my body, and listen to the stories that my body is telling me, which begins by listening to my feelings. What am I feeling? Um, Having little conversations with those feelings, talking to my body, learning to appreciate and love my body, get over whatever offenses I have with my body so that I can be more aligned, realizing that physical health is a key component to mental health and physical care for this body is a key component to self-care. But I want to take this one step deeper before I finish. Hopefully I've got enough time to do this because uh, this is really, that was kind of like my introduction. <laughs> this body is of this earth. And so when we start to connect with the body, we start to connect with the earth. And this is where I want to take this, that there are, have been throughout the majority of humanity's time, religions, belief systems, forms of spirituality that were very, 
earthy paganism, the ancient religions, shamanism, indigenous religions were not these disembodied religions. Because you, you can't really connect with nature. We talk about connecting with nature and we, we call that, you know, going up to the mountains or walking by a river or taking a hike or stopping to smell the roses, right? So, well, I just had to get out and reconnect with nature. Listen, if you're not connected to your own body, it's impossible for you to be connected with nature. Like that's just an experience that you had. It made you feel better. It was cathartic or it was, uh, something that brought you enjoyment. But you can't really connect with the earth, with nature, and be out of sync with your body because your body is the, that's why we call it Mother Earth, right? And so I was thinking about this. And so that would be a form of embodied religion. Something that honors nature. Now, we have to realize, I think we're all aware, that science and history tells us a very different story about the history of humanity than the Bible does. Now, most people aren't aware of this, but the whole idea of fallen angels does not come from our scriptures. Because really, with the exception of Revelation chapter 12, you don't have a story in the Bible of fallen angels. And I'm going to set this up for maybe what I'll do next time or if I'm feeling up to it later in the week. Uh, The fallen angel story is rooted in Hebraic religion, but not in the Torah accounts but in the Enochian literature, in what's called the apocalyptic literature. So that the fall that's told in Genesis chapter 3 is very different than the fall that's told in the book of Enoch. In the book of Enoch, this group of angels called the Watchers come down from heaven and begin to teach uh, humanity all these naughty things. And all these naughty things that they were being taught was about how to live in the earth about farming and industry, even teaching the women makeup and the arts of seduction, plant medicine and all that stuff. So the watchers were vilified because they were connecting humanity to the earth. And that's where the idea of demons and that's where the idea of fallen angels enters into Hebraic religion. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, is part of the apocalyptic genre of literature. So it's following less in the steps of the Garden of Eden story and more in the steps of the Enochian literature that was around at the time. So even the Bible has two different stories of how the fall happened, how corruption happened. You can say they're not incongruent with each other, that you could have both. I get that. But then science tells us a very different story. Uh, discoveries tell us a very different story. I said last week I didn't know how old humanity was. Somebody commented, I can't remember, that they had just found remains that were 3 million years old or something like that. I don't know about that. I I was just Googling 
what the consensus seems to be among uh, historians and anthropologists and stuff. And as of right now, the consensus seems to be 200,000 years. So let's just be conservative and say that human, the human race, Homo sapiens, has been around for 200,000 years. Now, going as far back as we can in civilization, we find polytheism. We find beliefs in many gods, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Certainly, the Eastern religions, Hinduism, polytheistic, many gods. Although I know someone's going to argue that Hinduism is really monotheistic. Not relevant to the point that I'm trying to make. But they go back even further, and they can find cave dwellings in Europe, for example. And there are paintings of deities that represent nature. So what I want you to see is that humanity, for the vast majority of its time, has not been monotheistic. Humanity, for the vast majority of its time, has been polytheistic, and this polytheism, this belief in many gods, was a way of relating to the different phenomena that, and a way of explaining the different phenomena that they were experiencing, the different energies, however you want to understand that, that were occurring. And so you had a different sentient being or God with power over these various different experiences. And that was their primary job was to watch over Let's say fertility and, and the crops, for example. So you might have a, a goddess usually that was responsible for fertility and fertility not being, you know, so that we can just have kids and sex, but uh, the fertility of the ground, the renewing of life. And that was that goddess's job. And so there were various different offerings and prayers and things to be said to that being. And then you might have over he, uh, another place, a god that was over hunting expeditions or war and protecting you from your enemies. So you would relate to the different gods based on their different jobs. Monotheism gave us a one, uh, one guy that does it all. <laughs> Although not really, because in, from the earliest writings of Christianity, you had angelic orders. You had angels that were responsible in the Catholic mm-hmm. church. You have angels and saints that are responsible for different things. So they have still have sort of that polytheistic idea. It's just been reformatted to fit with the Christian monotheism. So here's what's really interesting. Do I want to get into this with nine minutes left? Let me see. (laughs) Am I boring you guys? (laughs) Here's, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that when you are disembodied, then you are disconnected from the earth. You're disconnected from nature. And when you're disconnected from nature, you're unnatural. And we've got some problems. 
Okay, people were saying not boring. Great talk. Okay, so I'll keep going here a little bit. So here's what's interesting. When Christianity started to take over Europe, going all the way back to the ranks of Justin Martyr, the gods of first Rome and then, you know, other cultures were all assigned as demons. They were all assigned as demons. The Bible itself doesn't really give us, the Bible gives us one picture of the devil. If you want to know, what does the devil look like? If I were to ask you today or ask someone on the street, what does the devil look like? Red guy with a tail and horns and pitchfork, right? Uh, An entity with a goat head. Um, But some kind of blending between man and beast, usually. And the only description that we're given concretely of the devil in the Bible is that of a dragon. So a lot of the early Christian stuff, the devil and demons were seen as in this sort of dragon format or as a fallen angel, something beautiful. Uh, Lucifer would be painted as a beautiful angel. He'd just be fallen. Or if they wanted to work on the psyche a little bit, make him scarier and more evil, painted as a dragon. But never um, the horned guy that we think of today. That morphed more out of European conquest of Christianity. So as Christianity was expanding to the Celts and expanding into Norway, upper regions of Europe, and, and expanding in this part of the West, what happened was, was that the Christians would come in and these pagan cultures would have pictures of these gods that they worshipped, prayed to, and served, that they had devotion to, that they had a positive response to. And the church would come in and say, no, those are demons that you've been deceived by in order to convert them. So they would have to renounce these gods as demonic. One of these gods is known as the horned god, Pan, in Greek. But in almost every culture of the world, every place in the world where paintings on cave walls or artifacts have been found, there is a deity that blends human and animal features particularly with a goat's head or with horns or antlers. And almost universally, this deity was celebrated as a celebration of nature, as an understanding of the harmony, as an understanding like the beast thing wasn't a disfiguring thing. It was, it was a harmonizing of the person with nature. And so typically, like Pan, for instance, would be the god of mirth, wine that comes from the ground, feasting, was, I think, the god of the shepherds, those that were connected, working with nature. 
was also connected to death because death is a natural experience. Just why the word panic comes from the word pan, because there was this other side of pan as well. But these celebrations were a celebration of what was human. So they might have a time when they're devoting to pan or to the horned god, and they would be feasting on the harvest of the earth. They would be drinking wine. And then there would be uh, typically some kind of sexual rites that would be taking place as a celebration of sexuality and fertility, a celebration, if you will, of the body, the celebration of the pleasures and the good gifts and things that nature gives. And then they would personify it in these types of images, and that image would become an archetype. Because the idea was that there was the pleasures of life combined with ethical responsibilities to this life. Those things, then, in order to get rid of these religions, in order to convert people, they were demonized. They were vilified. So as you see Christianity taking over these other cultures, that's when you begin to see the devil with horns and goat heads and things like this. So I'm just trying to get you to see the image that we have today of the devil is not biblical. And it predates Christianity by thousands and thousands and thousands of years as something that was honored and cherished and celebrated and then became reframed in Christianity, become an image that would represent something evil. Now, when we become disincarnate, meaning religion from the neck up, and we're not celebrating or in line with or in harmony with our own bodies, we can't possibly be in harmony with nature. But when we're disembodied, when we're no longer in harmony with nature, not only do we lose so much of what can provide us with abundant life, so much of what can provide us with zest and pleasure and joy and being able to celebrate those things, but we also... um Lose connection with community. We lose connection with our neighbors. When we lose sense of our responsibility to be stewards of the earth, um, and we lose connection with delight, and we view pleasure loving as something evil. <laughs> we fast, we don't feast. We abstain, we don't Celebrate. We've, we've seen from sex, we don't celebrate sex. We uh, fast and we don't feast. We um, criminalize certain herbs. Uh, and, and then, so what you're seeing 
is that, and, and then we treat our neighbors terribly because what matters is how you think and how you believe and not the fact that you're a organic human being that lives next door to me that I should be caring for and watching out for. No, we, we believe, you know, we, we have a Biden sign in our yard. We hate those Trumpers over there. The Trumpers have, uh, they're flying their, you know, flags and whatever. And so we're dividing on a mental level because we've lost connection. If you lose connection with your body, you lose connection with, uh, reproduction, sexuality, you lose connection with pleasure and feasting and, and enjoyment and all these things. Then pretty soon, you know, uh, You don't care about your neighbor anymore. <laughs> don't care about the earth. And so then what happened, like we saw in the 60s, like this kind of massive reaction and movement that says, no, we're going to return to the earth. Like this, this, this movement that pushed against the really the Christ, Christianization of Europe. The other thing we lose connection with, if we lose connection with nature, we lose connection with science. And there isn't a more anti-science group on the planet than those that are following some kind of disembodied neck up spirituality. Right? We don't trust science anymore. Science is the observation of natural law, how things are working. So it... The, the the problems begin to snowball. It's not just about you not having a good relationship with your body. It's about you not having a good relationship with nature. And as a result of not having a good relationship with nature, we don't care as much about community anymore. We don't value science. Uh, we think every opinion is created equal um, <clears throat> in terms of scientific discussions, scholarly discussions. So we have all this problem. So in the 60s, you have this kind of pushback and and so here's what happens in our society. See, like, we don't want to return. There, there are forces that don't want a return to that, that don't want people to get back connected with their bodies and back connected with nature in an, in an aligned sort of celebratory way. And so... I mean, the whole war on drugs was a political push, not just against people of color and black people. Certainly, that's very, very, very evident, very evident. There's definitely a racial component to that. But there was also sort of a hippie component to that, too. And so, you know, we give these sort of subtly demeaning labels to the flower children. Flower power. It's kind of a scoffing sort of thing. Today it might be the tree huggers. Those tree huggers are out there. Subtle, demeaning language. Which really is, really guys, is a form of covert hypnosis. They're little hypnotic suggestions that become memed in our society, meaning repeated in a pattern in people's thought and thinking to keep them closed off from those avenues and from those areas. The fact that witches are still portrayed in horror movies 
because a witch would have been someone who was in touch with the earth. The suppression of the feminine, certainly. Suppression of the divine feminine, because when you really do begin to get in touch with nature, you really do begin to get in touch with that feminine side, that feminine energy and that feminine side of life, which is the earth. And so we make people afraid of talking about the divine feminine, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, there's no sacramental way of connecting with God. A sacrament is an earthly representation. Not moved by what I see, not moved by what I feel, only moved by what I believe, religion from the neck up. So any form of divination where there's an object out here telling me something, any form of plant-based um, magic, um, astrology, connecting with the cycles of the moon. Any of that kind of stuff. I mean, could you imagine if I said, we're going to open back up and we're going to have a, it's fall, we're going to have a fertility ritual to, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be a fertility. We're going to have some kind of fall celebration to the divine feminine and God forbid we give that name like Aphrodite or Diana or Freya or Isis. Could you imagine? Said, hey, Pueblo peeps, or we plan it for the spring equinox. We're going to have a fertility celebration to Ishtar. Come out. We're going to have food. We're going to have wine. We're going to celebrate connection with nature. Could you imagine? <laughs> I'm leaving the other off because that would be scandalous enough. That's the mental programming. That's the mental hypnosis that really keeps us from connecting with nature, <laughs> being organic. And so I think there needs to be some kind of a return in some sense. I don't know what that looks like. I would not be at all surprised to see a revival of sort of pagan nature-based religions. I wouldn't be surprised not to see it because we're moving further and further away from that with social media, which is non-organic. This kind of thing, which isn't as organic, is actually seeing you, being present with you. Virtual reality, all that stuff. So it concerns me. The direction, the trajectory of humanity that is being fueled to a large degree by religion and spirituality that disconnects consciousness from the body. Religion from the neck up. Yeah. So give me your comments. Give me your feedback. Um, let's talk about this. Um, maybe we'll keep pursuing this line of thinking. If you don't take anything away, just, um, just notice how embodied you are, how much you're in your body, how much you feel what's in your body, how much you honor what's happening in your body. 
and how much you discount your body and live airy fairy or whatever. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could find a spirituality that once again honors both the transcendent and the metaphysical, but is completely aligned with and honoring of the physical and the here and now and not, and isn't afraid of all these things that can be so wonderful that we can enjoy and celebrate as an act of worship and that can be seen as sacred. Like that's what I want you to get. I guess nothing else from the, the, the horn God for tens of thousands of years, some type of a horned God was venerated and seen as sacred and holy. And then when Christianity moved in, they replaced that and made it something unclean, something evil and something unholy. And so maybe some of these people that are out there, you know, that we think are worshiping the devil. Because, oh, my God, <laughs> they have a picture of a horned creature. Maybe they are just escaping that social programming. If you look at it from a sociological perspective, cultural perspective, and they're able to go back and venerate something that humanity had venerated for tens of thousands of years. And maybe there's just a disconnect in our misunderstanding there. So uh, if you're pagan, you practice Wicca, uh, if you're polytheistic, whatever, if you're a nature lover, if you're a tree hugger, maybe you're on the right path. Maybe we need to listen. Maybe you got a lot more to share with us. I'm speaking as a Christian. you got a lot more to share with us than we ever could possibly imagine. And forgive us and forgive me for being part of a system, part of a meme, part of a pendulum that ever vilified you. And may there be some reconciliation. May there be some healing. And for the rest of us, maybe we can find a way to realign with our bodies, to realign with nature. And maybe if we did that, we would realign with our neighbors. And maybe we could create something beautiful. So with that, I'll leave you. Uh, thank you so much for watching. I, I can't wait to go back and read the comments. Let me know if this interests you, if you want to keep going. And looking at some of this stuff, I'm just beginning this part of my journey with this. Uh, and I'll share more about, you know, how that's working out for me uh, as, I, as I navigate this season of my life. So anyway, thanks for listening to me. Uh, thanks for giving me your time to spend uh, with me. I look forward to when we can do this more in person and personally. Uh, so love you. God bless you. Namaste.